Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. Uh, this is Mike Lewis, joined by Doug Battle. And Doug, right out the gate, the alopecia nation as a, <laughs> as a as a sufferer of the condition, that was oddly my high point of everything yesterday was, I think it was a, uh, tweeted by a member of the squad and then quickly pulled down. But look, and you know why I love Alopecia Nation, right? Because it's always Dog Nation, Illini Nation, Tar Heel <laughs> it's Nation. It's like a fandom. Never thought I'd hear Alopecia Nation. I didn't know that was a thing. You didn't know the nation was a thing or Alopecia that was a Alopecia thing? Alopecia Nation was a thing. Are you making that a thing? Uh, did I ever? Um, it, He's showing me his arm without it's any It's a legitimate hair on it. condition. You see how the hair goes to like right about there and then uh-huh. stops? Yeah. It's weird when you notice it, isn't it? Yeah. So did you feel like, did you feel like Will Smith stood up for you last night? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a strange moment, but let's, let's get to that in a second because, of course, that's a major and interesting story about fandom but let's let's direct our attention to the ncaa tournament because this is a good one isn't it doug man it's been one of my favorite tournaments that i can remember i mean we've had we've got it all we've got the upset team the cinderella which is has now been eliminated but it's weird with those teams. It's inevitable that they're going to lose at some point, but everyone's just kind of seeing how far they can go and rooting for it and watching these young men become all-time legends in college basketball. Oh, and it was um, it was a good one, wasn't it? I mean, the kid with the mustache. I mean, it yeah, was... Yeah, my namesake. It was really built for TV and a Cinderella story. He cashed out with a Buffalo Wild Wings NIL deal, too. Oh, I don't did know if he? saw that, but yeah. Yeah, so it's great. It's great to see these kids get to profit. They, they go from zero to hero overnight, and now they get to cash out on it. Do you see the? Is there a dollar amount public on that one? I don't know. I don't know. I hope it's more than it should be. I hope it's a lot. Um, I don't know how valuable he's going to be beyond this run. I think the value is. Um, I I think expired produce kind of value. I think that's <laughs> trending downward. But hey, man, I'm more I'm more likely to go to I I kind of want to go to Buffalo Wild Wings this week just to support the fact that they paid the kid because uh, I think that's awesome. I can so, kind of see that. I I can see that, and that's um, 
that's something I think people often overlook in in these kind of deals is you know the endorsement to the under to the underdog because St. Peter's was a was a fun story. I mean the the, the kid with the mustache, the way the audience built uh, yeah. over time, it was kind of classic. Classic. I don't know if you saw Eli Manning tweeted out that as a former New York Giant, he's a longtime St. Pete's fan. That was his his home team in New Jersey. Which of course isn't true, but he he played along as if he were this longtime fan on social media over the course of their run, and uh, I think I kind of did the same thing. I think a lot of people did. I if you noticed in the stadium, there were probably more people in the stadium pulling for that team than there are who have graduated from there ever. Uh, it's such a small school, and so I, I love it. I love seeing a fandom emerge emerge out of nowhere in the NCAA tournament. Hey, Doug, I was glad to see that it was still possible. Yeah. You know, because after the last couple of years, you know, I I tend to think a lot of this stuff is getting fairly shaky. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of great that people were still willing to embrace this, follow the team. And and look, when they they beat Purdue, that was like, I mean, this this is the farthest a a 15th seed has ever gotten, I believe, right? Yes. Yes, the only... I'm trying to think, the last 15 seed I remember winning the first round was Lehigh against Duke, and it was uh, C.J. McCollum. So they had a, a borderline NBA All Star on their team. This team's a little bit different. I don't know that there's an NBA player on this team. No, and you know, in that last game against North Carolina, I remarked to someone in the room, and you know, feel free to shout me down that the game plan <laughs> for the St. Peter seemed to be let's keep relying on the magic. Yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do against UNC if you? They look. They're not exact. They look thoroughly outclassed. They look small every position. It, but they're, you know, I, I was watching with some guys, and people were saying this is a terrible game, which I understand technically it was. I kind of enjoyed watching them keep doing their thing to the final buzzer. Like they, every time a guy would try to draw a charge or, or go down after a foul. The whole team runs over to pick them up. Like that team had some crazy chemistry. Uh, the bench was doing their thing. The I mean, they were down twenty points and they'd go on a little three or four point run, and the crowd would get back into it. The players would get all excited. I kind of liked it. It was like watching three hundred, where you know they're going to lose at some point, but they're not going to go down without a fight, uh, and they're going to go down as legends for for how they went out. Xerxes may have been an alopecia sufferer in that movie. I I do believe he was. Is that the theme of today's episode? <laughs> yes, this is the Alopecia Nation episode. Uh, beyond that, we also have... Okay, so when I think about the NCAA tournament, I was thinking about this a little bit this morning. It's almost like I go in two, two or three categories. One, Cinderella's. Okay, check. We got that beyond belief. And like I yes. said, the kid with the mustache, a beautiful Cinderella. Well, the mustache, and I think I talked about this last week, but part of the formula for winning or going on a run in the tournament as a mid-major is having a kid with a mustache or a man bun or just long brown hair. But there's always a, what's the term, FLK, funny looking kid uh, on, on one of these teams who happens to be a baller. And as soon as I saw this guy, I okay, regretted okay, okay. not taking I'll, I'll let Peter's. you finish this in a second, but... Can I use FLK to my kids in a text and they'll know what I'm talking about? Is that 
I don't know. They might think you're using the F word in some way too, because <laughs> okay. like FML kind of thing. Yeah, okay, so I, 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 I like learning. I like learning new things. Are you teaching me something, or are you just making? Shit I don't know, because your kids are a little bit younger than me, so I don't know if they. Uh, I don't know if if funny looking kid is going to work, but like the first time, I think somebody used that term with Trevor Lawrence, which I think is unfair. I think Trevor Lawrence is a good looking guy, but um, back when he was. In college, uh, he was referred to as an FLK to me one time, and that's, I think that's why I picked up the term. Yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm with you on Trevor Lawrence. He's not a funny-looking guy, but he's chosen a unique style. He's got a mane. He looks like a lion. I think it's great. Yeah. Okay, so as I was saying, so we, got this, we got the Cinderella check. Check. We've got, Duke the, UNC. We've got the Blue Bloods, you know, and, and that's probably what you need for the ratings. Now, the third one, and let's hold off on this but i will you know i'll have to let it out a little bit we've also got the personal connection to it and as usual that did not go particularly well for me okay so i had him going further the the final four villanova versus uh kansas and unc versus Duke. doesn't it doesn't get much more blue blood than that right unless maybe we could put kentucky in place of villanova or ucla in place of villanova yeah, but the blood doesn't get much bluer than this. You're right. And on top of that, we've also got the Coach K farewell tour. And again, you know, not a conspiracy, not a sports. Maybe we should make it about sports. Consp- the show should emphasize always <laughs> sports conspiracies. Everything's rigged. But to defeat Izzo and now to play North Carolina in the Final Four and Gonzaga to go down before they got to Duke, it's... um. It's a great storyline as well. No, it's phenomenal. And it feels like it's staged because it's so storybook. It's so, they've been, even if you go back to that last Coach K home game against UNC, and there was so much commotion about it being his last game and so much. And he had the whole, after they lost, we're not finished yet. The season's not over. I mean, it was a prequel to what we're seeing now. And it feels as though this was all written out. Um, maybe God is just like a sports guy and he likes to write really good narratives because it always feels like those things just happen. But Coach K, I've kind of felt like the Coach K in the tournament either loses in the first round or like wins the whole thing. That's kind of his thing. Um, so now I'm like, I don't know, maybe he's gonna maybe he's gonna win the whole thing. That'd be pretty storybook. That'd be like be like if I mean Kobe Bryant's last game was pretty storybook, but it wasn't in the NBA Finals. That that's the one thing that would have made it different. And I think Coach K has the opportunity to do that. Um, UNC and Duke, I don't believe they've played in the Final Four before. So even Coach Story, Coach K's storyline aside, historic timing of this matchup oh, with a first year with a first year coach at UNC. I mean that's yeah, it's it's pretty phenomenal. So. And neither of these teams, I'm trying to think the last time either team was in the Final Four. Uh, it's been a few years, though. So it's it's been a long time coming, and uh, Coach K has a chance to go out with a bang. His legacy can't be tarnished at this point as far as wins and losses. But on, on the other side, nobody's really talking about Kansas and, and Villanova. And I think there's, I think casual fans are fatigued from seeing blue bloods like i think everyone pulls for the upset and enjoys that and when it gets to the point where none of the little guys are in it it's less interesting to a lot of people although the basketball is likely to be more competitive and more high caliber well 
And, and let me ask you a couple of questions about it. I mean, you know, Coach K, final, final four against North Carolina. That could be one of the highest rated, uh, you know, final four games in, and I'm going to put kind of quotations around this because we'll talk about ratings in a minute here, in yeah. this modern era of sports. Right, right. It, it's sort of hard to imagine any game having a bigger draw than, you know, Duke versus UNC, the end of Coach K and sort of the the reva- sort of the rebuilding or restarting of UNC under a new coach. Mm-hmm. Let's say Coach K be, and, and Duke should be a decent favorite in that game. Then perhaps he's playing Kansas in the finals with Roy Williams gone, Coach K stepping away. Maybe Syracuse not on, uh, you know, Syracuse has fallen off a little bit over the years. I, and I'm thinking about coaches at this point, Doug. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bayheim is Bill uh, Calipari maybe not killing it at Kentucky quite as much. Is Bill Self the dean of college coaches going forward? Uh, it's either him or Tom Crean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally I, I thought kidding. you were going to say, when I heard Tom, I thought it was going to be Izzo, but Crean's <laughs> Yeah, I'm joking. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to not have recency bias with these things. I mean, I think if if Michigan State, if this happened to be one of the years where they were in the Final Four, we'd be saying Tom Izzo and Bill Self. Um, same with John Calipari. Well, Calipari, same. Izzo, and Self, they are the... But uh, hey, they're Villanova. The, they're the... Yeah, Jay Wright. Villanova, Gonzaga, um, Baylor now creeping in. I mean, there's a couple of these teams that are becoming perennial contenders. Kind of the new blue bloods, if you will. But... And we talk about this a lot, right? What does it take to get to that status? And Gonzaga never won it. Yeah. Right? Um They're they're the best. They're like a dynasty, except they haven't won any championships. But they've been so consistently great in recent memory that it's hard to not consider them as a blue blood. But I guess until they win a couple, it's they're they're second tier still. Even though they're number one during the regular season almost for the entire season every year. True, but this group of blue bloods, if this had been the final four in 1981, it wouldn't have surprised anyone. In 1991, it wouldn't have surprised anyone. Yeah. 2001. Throw in, 2000. throw in UCLA or Indiana. Yeah. Um, switch them in every now and then. But yeah, it's, this is, you're right. I mean, this is kind of the core group of teams that are just always great. So, it, but it sounds like, and look, this is an interesting question from a, almost a theoretical perspective. And, I'm getting near the end of my semester, and one of the things I always talk about at the end of the semester is competitive balance. And it's a tricky thing to it's a tricky thing to sort of get your head around because at the at the beginning, sort of first principles, more competitive balance is better, right? Everyone needs a shot to be the champion. St. Peter's mm-hmm. needs a shot to be the champion. But I think if you asked fans who they're actually going to turn into, then a Final Four that has UNC, Duke, Kentucky, and Kansas very close to what we have might be what the fans would select. Yeah, I I think so. I think Duke, UNC, I have a friend who actually has Final Four tickets. He bought them when they were going to be in Atlanta. Uh, and, of course, the pandemic happened, and somehow his his tickets got reshuffled to this year. So he's been rooting the entire time for Duke, UNC, and I think his second pick would have been St. Peter's, but at the end of the day, he feels like he's getting more bang for his buck with it being Duke UNC, the classic rivalry in the Final Four for the first time as part of Coach K's farewell tour. So I think that's what fans have wanted. 
um, across the board. And I think the ratings will reflect that. Although, as we both know, uh, it's hard to judge ratings against previous years with all the changes in consumer uh, behavior as far as streaming television, watching television in groups, not watching television, consuming on social media, all the rest. Well, I looked up the ratings and your points are well taken that it's hard to figure out what some of this stuff means. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there is some happiness in general that the the final the NCAA tournament thus far, the ratings are up. I I, I think the number I saw was they're up 13 or 14% versus the 2021 tournament. But but they're all the 2021 tournament was also down about the same amount, 12, 13, 14 points versus 2019. So college basketball is back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, I, I think that's got to be calls for happiness in that the decline is stopped, but for the long-term health of the game, you know, we're definitely on a downward trajectory. And so stabilization might be the the ideal situation at the moment. Yeah, I think so. And and getting back to a competitive balance, one thing in basketball and college basketball in particular that um, that I think is favorable for parity is the fact that the best players at the Blue Bloods tend to go pro after one year. And teams like St. Pete's, for example, they've got fourth-year seniors who have played together for four years. And so there is kind of this advantage to the continuity of some of the mid-majors, some of the lower-tier teams um, that that are keeping players, retaining players. Of course, it, it'll be interesting to see over time how much the transfer portal affects that because you imagine there being one NBA player on a team like that um, who transfers to a Kentucky to showcase his, his skill set and to be considered among the top players uh, in the NBA draft. Maybe they lose their one guy, like the Gordon Hayward at Butler years back, uh, probably could have transferred to a Kentucky or to a Duke uh, rather than sticking it out at Butler for a few years. So I'll be interested to see how much the competitive balance and parity in college basketball changes. But I've always liked the fact that the the continuity gives the less talented teams somewhat of an advantage and situations that uh, require adversity, such as the NCAA tournament. Well. It's uh, it's a good point, and I think it's something that's been playing out for a long time now. As you were going down that path, well, two thoughts popped into my head. One, one sort of a little bit of nonsense. Remember, Larry Bird transferred from Indiana or quit Indiana and transferred to <laughs> Indiana State. Right. <laughs> sort of the, the the strangeness of what this world used to be like. But, yeah. But it, it strikes me that in our conversation so far, we've mentioned one player, a kid named Doug with a mustache, yeah. and then we've talked mostly about coaches and programs. And I think yeah. that's completely consistent with the point you're making that we don't get to know these players anymore. So the, the drama in the Final Four almost ends up being more about Bill Self is back, or you know, there's a, you know St. Peter's, or it's Coach K or Izzo, more than you know, Patrick Ewing making it to the final four. And again, I'm going way back. But that era of, you know, the Jordans and the Patrick Ewings, I think was when college basketball really was marquee, marquee stuff because even a guy like Jordan was playing for three years. Right. right? And so it's 
again, we're going back, and again, I understand my age here, but this well, lack of player star power. Yeah, for me growing up, I watched UNC, uh, and I remember Tyler Hansbrough and Wayne Ellington and Ty Lawson. That group of players played together for three or four years and finished their careers winning a championship finally, but it felt like over the course, like part of the UNC brand was those players. Like I associated, I liked UNC because I liked Tyler Hansbrough because I liked Ty Lawson. Nowadays, I don't know who plays for who. It's almost like it's AAU. It's just one year. It's U19 AAU, uh, at least when it comes to the Blue Bloods for the most part. And so the, there's so much turnover and, and players are always changing. The one thing consistent is the coaches um, and just the programs, the brands that they've already established. You know, I'll, I'll push you a little bit. And again, it's not fair because of your age, but college basketball used to be set up where even if a guy was a surefire pro, he was going to be playing for three years. And, and I'm not yeah. taking anything away from Hansborough, but <laughs> you get to, you know, it was Akeem Olajuwon and Patrick right. Ewing. It was guys right. that you almost knew was, were going to be NBA Hall of Famers. It was as if LeBron were to play for three years. For three for years. Ohio State or something, right. Yeah. Akron, yeah, Akron that's, Zips, Doug, I think. For someone, for someone my age, it's, uh, it's unfathomable. Um, looking back, even to think of Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, even Dwight Howard, Tracy McGrady, some of these guys who, who went straight to the pros playing three years of college basketball, how much different college basketball would be, what the caliber of play would be like. It, it's unlike, I mean, anyone that athletic, a, a LeBron James caliber athlete, a Dwight Howard caliber athlete, we're just not seeing in college basketball for very long. Zion Williamson was the exception. Um, he had a pretty short career, only one year, but he also had injuries within that year. It, it reminds me of Kyrie Irving having playing like three or four games in his college career due to injury. And nowadays with the G League, we've got guys bypassing college altogether um, in, in an attempt to go pro, as well as guys who are playing overseas in, in professional leagues before coming to the NBA. So, yeah, the caliber of basketball, there's not the Hakeem Olajuwon or uh, <laughs> Magic Johnson's playing college basketball for more than a year at least. Well, and speaking of centers, elite centers, and I know that's not what your intention was, but getting back <laughs> to my my personal issues. So it's it's rough being, uh, look, I mean, you, you can't relate. I mean, you're going to pretend that you can relate because your Georgia Bulldog basketball team was in Terrible. utter chaos this, this yeah. year. <clears throat> but, you know, you won a national championship and, you know, maybe the number two sport in this country in a way in terms of broad consumer interest and passion. I'll say passion. You mean the only sport that matters? I'll say passion rather than interest. Okay. Okay. So my Illini lost in the second round again. Again. And it's, uh, you know, so on a personal level, I mean, it's the greatest tournament ever in, in terms of how it's designed with the drama but when your team goes down early, it does put just that sour taste in your mouth that you're that is going to be hard to overcome. Like when my team loses, I'm not even going to look at the tournament. I'm going to skip a ground, right? I'm going to I'm just going to like protest and leave. But as you were talking about it, you know, Illinois' best player this year and maybe last year, depending on sort of how you want to look at it, is a giant. He's a giant center named mm -hmm. Kofi Cockburn. And he, 
is potentially coming back despite being a first-team All-American. And Doug, part of what I wonder is about it, and so there's big questions about if, you know, Kofi's going to translate to the NBA. He's not a three-point shooter. He's probably a little slow-footed, and he's not going to have, you know, 75 pounds of weight on his opposition at the next level. But I do wonder, is a guy like that, is he now the ideal candidate for college basketball because potentially he can make more money through NIL by being the big man on the Urbana-Champaign campus for four years? Is he now a million dollar? Can he make a million dollars next year playing in Urbana-Champaign versus having to go play in Europe or wherever? Or the G League or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, My only counterpoint to that would be the fact that for whatever reason, the NCAA tournament seems to be such a guard game where a guy like Kofi Cockburn may be the ideal recruit because you're, would you rather have one year of Anthony Edwards or would you rather have four years of Kofi Cockburn? Um, Kofi Cockburn's probably the better college basketball prospect although he's not a tenth the nba prospect but at the same time as far as the value that you're getting but at the same time come tournament time it seems that the the bigs kind of disappear a little bit it's it's and maybe that's a microcosm of basketball as a whole i know in the nba we've seen uh multiple mvps and mvp candidates such as Jokic and joel Embiid over the years and not making finals appearances whereas the guards tend to to run the league um that's trickling down into college basketball as well when i'm picking a bracket i hardly even think about the bigs here's a speculation then yeah if you want to build a program should you be mainly recruiting undersized guards I I like that strategy. I like Georgia's had a number of guys like that, and Virginia, who my family uh, roots for, and those guys are because they're great in college, but they're you know like just by measurables that they're not going to be able to go pro, and so you know you're getting four years of a really great college basketball player. Having watched Georgia over the years have a number of NBA guys, I think I'd rather have four years of. A guy like Severe Wheeler's a recent one who transferred to Kentucky this last offseason as part of the entire team transferring out under Tom Crean. Um, but guys like that, I think, are more valuable to a to a program uh, as far as the the value they're providing over the course of their career than someone like Anthony Edwards, who was in the same recruiting class, came in, played a couple games, scored a bunch of points, didn't make the tournament, went pro, is killing it for the Timberwolves now. Maybe we're. Um... And this is just sort of speculation. Maybe we, you almost see this shift from that uh, that Kentucky one and done pure strategy that they've seemed to have lost track of. Right, Calipari didn't <laughs> seem to be able to dominate that way. To yeah. to the the non pro prospect prospects. I mean, it's entirely possible. Yeah, I think the best teams tend to get a mix of those guys. I think Duke's done a pretty good job of that over the years. They've had some undersized guards paired up with guys like Zion Williamson. These just super dominant freshmen who are obviously going to be lottery picks in the NBA. I think that's the sweet spot um, if you're okay, able. Okay, okay, but is that a sweet spot? Because if I'm the, and again, I, I said this part was going to be personal. If I'm the <laughs> University of Illinois, is Zion coming to my campus? No. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe Kofi Cockburn and, and a couple undersized guards 
playing together for four years is is the best strategy uh, for for the Illini or for. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about like my family's Virginia Cavaliers, uh, the Wahoos, who never have that great of NBA talent. Um, won a, a, a Final Four a couple years back. We're incredibly fortunate to have even made it to the Final Four that year. But they were positioned; they had the personnel to just enough to get it done. Mostly the type of players you're describing, the type of guys that stay for four years because they're a little bit undersized, a little bit too skinny, a little bit too short. Definitely not lottery pick NBA players. They did have one lottery pick caliber freshman on that team who I think was a a pretty big difference maker come tournament time uh, at the end of the season. I I mean, and that's Virginia. They're not going to get Zion Williamson either. So that might be the formula for an Illinois um, or or any of these non-blue blood basketball teams that that still are very competitive. Sort of program, I don't know, we're talking about programs 10 through 30 perhaps. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you got anything else on the NCAA tournament? I mean, look, looking forward, it's the it's a it's a Final Four really built for TV. We lost the we lost the the Cinderella, but frankly, with Coach K versus North Carolina, we didn't need him, right? Yeah, I mean, the narrative is there. It's it's the Coach K fast to round out his career for the and for the TV package and the storylines. Yeah, I think. I think uh, March Madness has provided the consumer what the consumer signed up for. I think the consumer wants that Cinderella for a while to keep up with and watch these storylines emerge. They also want to see the the bigger and more ultimate storylines towards the end, and, and that's what we're headed toward here. So I think the only thing that would be like I feel like Kansas. I haven't heard a, a peep about Kansas or Villanova, even though both have had excellent seasons. So. It would be interesting to see one of those teams <laughs> win the whole thing and and how receive that with with the general public not knowing not being able to name a player on those teams and I think most fans most just casual sports fans probably couldn't name Jay Wright as the head coach of Villanova like they could you know Coach K over at Duke so um, it, it'll be interesting to see but I've talked to multiple people who are saying oh I wish it could have been a Duke UNC championship like that would have been better it seems like that duke unc game will likely get more buzz generate more excitement than the eventual national championship game if i'm if i'm writing the storyline i'm totally if i'm scripting this i'm totally happy with how it turned out yeah you know because like i said with north carolina with a first year coach after their longtime guy stepped away that's a really kind of compelling final four matchup and like i said and i've i haven't gathered the numbers but I wouldn't be surprised if over the last 20 years, Bill Self is the most successful coach in college basketball, not named Krzyzewski. So this could definitely be a nice kind of, again, think about what it would have been, the, the path that he went through with, with Izzo, um, you know, North Carolina, and, the, you know, a beautiful line of storytelling. Okay, Doug, the other big story, and... And, you know, it's kind of funny watching this, right? So a punch or slap was thrown at the Oscars last night, and people are treating it with, I I don't know, uh, some some, uh, Twitter is full of hot takes, and (laughs) other media is trying to be more responsible about it. My take on it, or my, my starting point on this is, There's really two things. There's this cultural moment that we're in where 
there, there's a there's something strange going on in terms of violence being acceptable and speech being unacceptable and sort of things yeah. just kind of getting very coarse and very aggressive. But the other part of it, and we'll talk about both of these, the other part of it is the Oscars shines a light on how far the American film industry has fallen over time, both in terms of the program and when you start to dig deeper and you start to look at some of the movies that have won awards. Uh, Doug, the award for best picture went to, I don't even know, CODA or C-O-D-A? CODA, yeah, it's CODA. I looked up the box office, and again, this is not fair because this was apparently on a streaming service, but the box office for CODA was $1.1 million. That's, yeah, definitely not a blockbuster film. Okay, it's a film no one has seen. Yeah. I actually, uh, my mother saw it and she said she wants me to see it because she thinks I would like it. So I'm holding my judgments on CODA until I watch the film. I'm not making any judgments about the film, Doug. I'm just saying when your award winner is something that no one knows about, you got to start asking some questions. The, yeah, the, I think we saw that with Moonlight years back when it won over, uh, won over La La Land, and and people were shocked because most people hadn't heard of the movie or seen the movie. And, and when I say most people, I'm not talking about people in Hollywood. I'm talking about the general public. The um, the movie that Will Smith won the Best Actor award for, King Richard, the I don't know the biopic about the the Williams tennis family, grossed short of $40 million. So uh, again, you could argue that the biggest films that Hollywood is awarding have essentially zero cultural impact at this point. The Mm -hmm. Oscars themselves, and I was kind of hoping we'd have a number before we turned on the microphones. The Oscars apparently peaked with an audience of 55.2 million, which is enormous you know probably one of the top three or four programs of that year the super bowl in that year was i think about just over a hundred million two in 2021 the number was 10.5 million Mm -hmm. now you could argue that maybe they'll get a ratings bump this year because exciting things happened at the oscars now (laughs) but this is something that the award shows are not watched people are not watching a lot of the award-winning movies. You're, you're a cinnamon guy, Doug. What's, what's your take on the movie industry? Are you going to the theater post-COVID? Yes, um, but probably once or twice a year. Once or twice a year. I'm a, I'm a critic, Mike. Like I, I will sit there and c- criticize movies. There's very few movies that I just really enjoy, and I can kind of tell going into it whether I'm going to like it or not. So if I'm going to spend... You know, how much it costs to go to the theaters to see a movie, it's going to be one I'm pretty confident I'm going to enjoy. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not going as much as I used to. And let me give you a little bit more, a little bit more to chew on here. Okay. Domestic box office for 2021. See if you can spot the theme. Number one, Spider Man, No Way Home. Yeah. Number two, Shang Chi and the Legends of yeah. the Ten Rings. Right. <laughs> Number three, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. <laughs> Number four, the Black well, Black Widow. Number five, F9, the Fast Saga. I don't know how they got in there. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we go back to Eternals at number six. 
Yeah, which I heard was really bad. Um, yeah, so mostly Marvel films, almost entirely superhero films. But uh, these franchises, I mean, Marvel's created the quote-unquote cinematic universe where every film is a bit of a preview or trailer for the next film of a completely different character. Um, and so, and I was talking to a friend about it recently where he was like, man, I just want to, I just want to go to one superhero movie and then not feel like it was a commercial for another superhero movie, but that's kind of the Marvel formula and it's paying off in the box office. And I think that's why we've seen more of that in recent years because the numbers you just read off, like whether someone like myself likes it or not, it, it's appealing to the masses. Um, and, and you know, it's working with big numbers. Okay. I think for the film buffs out there, it's got to be an absolute tragedy, right? <laughs> when I think so, but I, I still know people that think those movies are genius or that, that love them. I mean, and even like Spider-Man No Way Home was nominated last night. I forget which category. I mean, it may have been just special effects, but but I know, I mean, and if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, I don't know if if the review people are always in cahoots with Disney or Marvel or whatnot, but almost all these movies are well-received as far as critics. Um, the exception probably being like Eternals, which you mentioned. But all that to say, the actual movie buffs that I know are not fans. It's more for like the middle schooler that goes to the movies every Friday. It's, it's almost like there's only one movie now, right? And that's, <laughs> and that's you know, Marvel. And, and it, I, I like that you called it the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Because in a way, it's people are, you know, we had people that were, would say they were movie fans. Mm-hmm. But that seems to have been supplanted by people that are Marvel Cinematic Universe fans. Yeah, and I think there's, like, Disney, when it acquired Star Wars, basically the attempt is to do the exact same thing with Star Wars that they did with Marvel um, after acquiring Marvel, which is to create this universe of uh, interacting stories that where each one serves as a... a there's the synergy where each one serves as kind of an advertisement for the next one or a prequel or a sequel to the next film that they put out. Well, Doug, and, if, I, and, if I keep going down the list, then you start to get into more Disney stuff. Uh, Jungle Cruise at 11, uh, something called Encanto at 15, <laughs> Cruella at 16. Yeah. So Disney is the dominant force in yes. the domestic box office. It's got to crowd out creativity, right? And, and even when you look Whoa. at the the Jungle Cruise is a movie about a ride. Cruella is <laughs> so it's, leveraging, uh, the Caribbean. you know, a seventy five year old cartoon, perhaps. Right. Yeah, and I think I think part of that has to do with the business of filmmaking. Like it may look that it's crowding out creativity, but I think creativity, in a sense, has been crowded out at least at that level with those types of budgets because the most sure investment in the film industry is a sequel to an established franchise that has an established fan base or a spinoff of an established franchise. You can see, you know, how, how it tends to limit creativity, whereas there's not a lot of new stories being told, at least at scale. And even yesterday I saw a trailer for a new Buzz Lightyear film, which is a origin story on the character Buzz Lightyear where the toy was based off of him. Everything's kind of tying together that way. But I mean, I think it, I think it's a business thing. I think it's, if you're going to invest $300 million in a film, you're going to, or $100 million or whatever it may be, 
it's got to be something where the investors know they're going to get their money back. Pretty much anything Marvel because of the fan base, anything Disney because of the rides and because of the branding and the synergy that they've established uh, brilliantly over the years um, it is going to be a winner. Whereas some of these, I don't think production companies or, or producers are as willing to take chances on new and original stories. Uh, the exception might be something like Encanto. Which which has been a huge success, and I think Pixar and Disney um, have, have probably had, they've probably had the most as far as the the big blockbuster films. They've probably told the most new stories th- through animation. I find it sad. I'm you know I'm straight shoot with you. I, I find it a little bit sad when I think back to even over the course of my life and you know some of the seeing the Star Wars and the Star Wars franchise being formed in the 1970s, right and you know, and just off the top of my head, the Die Hard franchise in the eighties, and the Lethal Weapon franchise, and maybe even some of the beginning of the Marvel stuff, right? And I'm not look. We're not talking about great cinema here per se, or great storytelling. We're talking about stuff that is designed, and and there's nothing wrong with this. Designed to appeal to the mass market. I mean, the reality is, I mean, this is always going to be the criticism of the critics, right? That if they like something like Coda and no one sees it, does that film actually matter? Or while people can take shots at the massive, you know, Avengers saga, guess what? That has a massive cultural impact <laughs> because everyone saw it or everyone's aware of it. So you're, you're of the opinion that like a film, I remember when Black Panther won Best Picture years back and that was under some criticism because of, being a Marvel film, being a film that feels like a commercial for other films, or it just feels very commercial. It feels like a consumer product, but because of its impact, you feel like a film like that might be more deserving um, than a coda, which maybe one one hundredth of as many people have seen, regardless of its you know artistic accomplishment. Well, here I'll, I'll give you a really kind of it's going to sound like a dumb answer in a way. Yeah. I don't know when Caddyshack came out. You know, maybe that's 1979, maybe that's 1980. I bet you if you look up the reviews of Caddyshack, it was a two, two and a half star movie. Mm -hmm. Every guy of my generation can quote Caddyshack, right? It's, Mm -hmm. well, and and so it's, it's had a lasting impact and maybe not a positive one, but as a piece of art, it's had a lasting impact, whereas... I don't know what won the Academy Award in 1979, right? right? So there right. is there is something about, you know, a movie reflecting, you know, and, and again, it's sort of a back and forth chicken and egg argument. Are some of these movies important because they're a reflection of the culture or because they are driving the culture? And I think it's almost always, it's almost always a mix. It, look, was Star Wars the most significant film of the 1970s? Yes. It established a cultural touch point for my generation all the way through your generation. Mm-hmm. So that's something that that's important, right? And that's something that I think people pick up in the long term that they miss out on the during the, you know, the the early days of a property of a film. Right. Um Yeah, I I just am over here trying to think of the last film I saw that wasn't a sequel or spinoff or origin story or based on a true story or based on a ride. I don't know if you saw based on a ride, um, something that wasn't pulled from a pre-existing and kind of like set 
like you kind of know what you're getting. You know who your viewers are going to be. You know what your audience is going to be. It's not very much of a risk. There's there's not a lot of films like that made. I mean, looking back, I think Tenet uh, by Christopher Nolan. I think of Whiplash and La La Land. Uh, but there, there's a handful in recent years, whereas the majority of these movies, like you said, and even like the most recent movie I saw in theaters was The Batman. And of course... I'm inclined to see that because I've seen the other Batman films and I grew up watching the Batman cartoons and I play with the Batman toys and I dressed up like Batman. Uh, <laughs> these kind of cinematic universes that we live in or that we explore throughout our lives that, that kind of keep reinventing themselves. It, it, look, going back to that list I read where some of these, these top movies from the last year, uh, it is kind of fascinating to me that Marvel has been able to retool with sort of the large, you know, Clearly, the the early success, or the I mean, it was more than early, right? Decade long success was based on, uh, you know, the Captain America character, the Iron Man character, Robert Downey Jr., and the Thor character. It's sort of remarkable that they've been able to retool and put out stuff like uh, was it Shang Chi, the Ten Rings, and well, the Eternals. And while they might not have been done as well as they wanted, they're still dominating the top ten. And, and look, even reinventing Spider-Man now with the third Spider-Man in the last 20 years, that I would have guessed, I guess, my point is I would have guessed there'd be more fatigue with that stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. And when years back, there was some Marvel conference where they announced their upcoming projects for the next 10 to 15 years. And they it was a list of superheroes I had never heard of before, including Shang-Chi, including, uh, you know, of course, I've heard of the Black Panther, but... Not one that it was not a Spider Man, it was not an Iron Man, it was not a Captain America. It wasn't this classic that I consumed or been exposed to through cartoons or whatnot my entire life. Uh, Doctor Strange, no idea who that was. I mean, I know the hardcore comic fans do, the general public does not. And so to see these films that when they were announced, I I didn't think there was a lot of enthusiasm. I don't think people were like, oh man, I can't wait to see what they do with Shang Chi in ten years or what they do with Doctor Strange or whatever when we were used to Captain America and Iron Man and, and Spider Man and, and in the DC world, Batman and Superman. Um I, I think it speaks to the formula that they've created at Marvel and, and they have a formula and to me that's my critique of the art is that it's very formulaic. But from a business standpoint it's brilliant. What are you you're twenty six? Yes. yes. Okay. Does it bother you if these movies start to feel like they are pure marketing driven yes yes it it drives me crazy i don't i don't personally enjoy i haven't seen shang chi um i i don't personally enjoy very many of the marvel movies because of that it feels like a commercial it feels almost feels like they're advertising for action figures or something like it 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 just feels like a long commercial to me it doesn't feel like a piece of art okay maybe there's a distinction there right so you can be fans of the can you have the same level of fandom for the there's there's something different maybe between film and sports where we spend most of our time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because I think you could happily kind of live in the Georgia football universe um, <laughs> where Georgia wins every year at the last second. Now, again it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, again, it sounds silly when I say that, right? Because it's fundamentally different because you have to have that realistic competition. They've got to actually have some achievement to pull off the victory. So that's why you'd be happy if they won every year because it would be – real but in the case of the marvel universe it just starts to feel repetitive and like you're saying 
there probably is something where you just feel like they're not telling me is there's there's probably a distinction between are they telling me a story or are they trying to get the next twelve dollar movie ticket from me? Mm-hmm. And maybe they've you know in the process of shifting to it just feels like they want twelve more dollars. Yeah. Well, there it's maybe it's fifteen it's, now. I don't know. Oh, it's it's twenty five some places. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it is, but yeah, it's. It's. I think it's complicated because I think the the creatives that work on these things are all artists and they all have an artistic vision and they all want to create art. And then the the people with the money that are funding these things want to put out a product that sells. And so there's all these different pressures. And I think the product is, you know, sometimes we talk about, oh, that movie felt like it was made by a, a marketing firm or by a uh, focus group like they they talked to a focus group and then they went out and made the new star wars that's how it feels sometimes i i feel like that's the influence of these corporations such as disney um and, and their subsidiaries such as marvel more so than the actual creatives but so there's there, to me there's usually like there's things that can be appreciated artistically but ultimately oftentimes with these big blockbusters it feels like it feels so consumeristic i guess i don't know how else to say it okay so returning to end this episode, returning back to the to the Oscars, the Academy Award. What do you think? I, I think it's you know, my take on it is that and look, my kids have actually told me, I've asked my kids about it today, and I've gotten some great responses. My kids know Will Smith's kids more than they know Will Smith. And a lot of the younger people seem to be speculating that it was a fake punch, that it was just done for publicity. Right. Um, I look at it and it strikes me as kind of, kind of crazy. And, and somehow I, I end up putting all these things together. You know, some of the stuff we've talked about, about sort of the mental, mental health type issues and, Smith's reaction to essentially heckling from the front of the from the from the stage to the audience does strike me as a an important cultural moment in terms of where are we going from here is it just this is where we're at or is there going to be the counter correction and he's going to he's going to lose the Oscar I almost think the Oscars have to take the statue away from him I don't think they'll do that I, I don't know. It's it's like everything else nowadays, and this again maybe reflects how it is a cultural moment. Is it's it's a microcosm of society because everybody watched the same exact events take place, and half the people I know think that Will Smith acted heroically in defending his wife, defending his name, defending his family, um, and what he did was honorable. And that Chris Rock should be completely canceled from society altogether. And on the flip side, I know people uh, that think that Chris Rock handled it like a champ, handled it with maturity. Will Smith couldn't take a joke. Will Smith, you know, was acting immaturely or was acting. He he lost his cool. He maybe he's struggling with some sort of mental health issue. I've heard that discussed. Uh, I'm not speculating myself, but. So I've seen two sides to the same thing, and it feels like it might feels like we've had this conversation a hundred times with every little issue that happens in the world, where it's 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 the same event, the same facts, and two completely different interpretations of what happened. Doug, let me follow up on something in there because the, so the folks that want Chris Rock canceled, are they in general? Look, I 
I, I don't think Chris Rock, my take on it is Chris Rock, there's no way he should be canceled because he's doing what Chris Rock does. Does. Now, yeah. maybe the different way to, to, to address this is, should the Oscars, should the award shows never have a comedian that tells <laughs> aggressive jokes? <laughs> I mean, is that what the people that you're talking, that want Chris Rock canceled? I think Essentially, so. Is I, that their world? I think people, I think we live in an age, and Chris, there's a recent Chris Rock quote from prior to uh, to the Oscars talking about how he can't really joke around anymore because people get offended and people want to cancel him or whatnot. And I think a lot of comedians feel that way. I know I saw John Mulaney on tour earlier this year. And of course, he's had a very controversial last couple of years, um, but he, he was saying the same types of things. But but and even shows like The Office, I think Steve Carell came out and said we couldn't do a show like that now. It wouldn't work now. It would get canceled. It would get people would hate it. Um, so I think comedy, you know, comedy is something that's always been cultural, and the culture's changed. The culture's changing, and so yesterday's funny is still funny to some people, uh, myself included, and to a lot of people, it's offensive and it's dated and. It, it needs to stop. And so I do think there's people that don't want to see any jabs thrown. Uh, not literally. <laughs> I think they, I think that the words are more, are more harmful in, in a lot of people's eyes. Yes. And, and to be honest, last night at the Oscars, there were probably 40 jokes that were as offensive as the joke that was told, told by the hosts. There was a joke about LeBron's hairline, which has been an ongoing thing with sports and seems to be fair game, fair play, um, and has been for quite some time. But it's getting to the point where it feels like anyone on stage that says a joke that they probably didn't write, by the way, they're reading what the you know comics or whoever wrote, um, might have to worry about getting punched in the face every other joke that they tell because somebody in the crowd's going to get offended and, and feel that they can rightfully go up and slap someone. That sounds like these award shows are doomed. Yeah, because that's what's entertaining. I mean, the only thing that's entertaining to a lot of people is, is the humor. Okay, but so comedy. if we're moving to an era, and again, we, we talked about the 1998, 55 million viewers last year, 2021, 10 million viewers. So Hollywood has shifted from... You know, we're, we're, we're talking about giving awards to films that basically no one has seen. And because of the way the culture has shifted, the broadcast and the entertainment has to be very careful and very, I don't know, generic, very safe. Maybe we don't see, look, a lot of these kind of award shows from my childhood that used to be kind of major TV events. I mean, I, I think things like Miss America used to be on TV. Mm-hmm. That these maybe these these events are just they're finished they're history. Yeah, it's it's tough. But one counterpoint um, would be that the controversy fuels interest, and I think last night's Oscars was the most interested my generation's been in the Oscars in our entire lifetimes. Same reason why CNN and Fox and all the different news stations. They love a controversial story because it, it gets clicks, it gets views, it gets in Facebook. You see all kinds of clickbait headlines um, that, that suggest controversy because people, the public 
has interest and controversy. It's why Eminem became famous or it's why NWA blew up or there's been films over the year. Controversy has been so key in marketing for, for pop culture. Um, And so maybe the controversy, maybe they, they fuel the flame with it. I mean, I I don't know. It seems like they probably wouldn't, but Doug, I love stupid stuff. And and so, like, I started out by talking about the alopecia nation, and and so, in some ways, I love this controversy. Now, I'm probably prime, I'm probably being more honest by professing my love for it directly, because exactly what you're saying is right. So we have we have this media storm, and so for me, it, it's joyous because it's this great fan, it's this great fan story, and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a as a professor, right, and doing it in very sober terms. Mm-hmm. My favorite piece of stupidity in all of this was the stuff going around Twitter that, well, Will Smith wouldn't have done that if The Rock had been the host. <laughs> and that one to me, that, that like just summed up the whole thing. It's sort well, of Judd, perfect I in think terms Judd, of where the culture's at. Judd Apatow said that Will Smith could have accidentally killed Chris Rock with that slap. Could have very easily killed him. I agree with that. <laughs> no, I, look, I, I do because you hit... I've spent enough time, Megan. <laughs> I've spent enough time in in some of that world that if you hit someone, they fall down, they bang their head, they can die. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so it's not that it's, it's not, not that you don't think it's too far fetched. Um, I thought, I thought the more feasible possibility was if he had knocked him out, which I mean, it looked like he hit him hard enough where he just about did, and. Watching Will Smith walk off the stage with a, a body on the ground just laying there would have been, uh, I don't know how they would have segued out of that to commercial or if security would have actually done something. Um, but there's a lot of possibilities that of what would have, could have, should have happened last night. Had it been Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Terry Crews or someone of that magnitude, would Will Smith have done the same thing? I don't think we'll ever know, but I think what oh, we I think do we, know. Doug, I think we know. I think, we <laughs> I think okay, that's fair. That's fair. But but uh, it's just a figure of speech, Mike. So I don't think we know, but I think what we do know is that uh, that we probably wouldn't be talking about the Oscars for this amount of time had that not happened. And so I know there's people that think it was staged. I personally don't. But the fact that people think they would stage that is reflective of how we know that controversy okay fuels conversation. It's so it can be a marketing ploy. Okay, then to wrap this up, to wrap up this episode, who's the big winner out of this? Chris Rock, Will Smith, or the Oscars? I'm gonna say the Oscars. Okay, I'm gonna say it's I'm gonna say it's Chris Rock, <laughs> and I, I I'm not even you all, all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, I, I I think it is, and it's. It's hard for me to imagine that Will Smith is the eventual winner in all this. But look, Chris Rock, he could go out and build his next hour-long special about around this whole thing, right? Yeah. I mean, he is um, almost... I mean, like I, when I saw John Mulaney earlier this year, John Mulaney had a divorce this year. John Mulaney impregnated a celebrity out of wedlock uh, probably during his marriage this year and John Mulaney went to drug rehab this year. That was his entire stand-up routine. Like people love controversy and it's entertaining and it gives it creates content for these guys. So yeah, like you're saying, Chris Rock could benefit from that. I think the Oscars benefited from it as well. Oh, the Oscars my question about the Oscars is will they benefit it from 
benefit from it moving forward. Now, actually, let me give you just one. I know I was going to close there, but let me get, ask you one question. And you're, this is kind of tough because you're an older generation Z or maybe you're the very youngest millennial. Right. Are the people that we're talking about that this controversy and all this interest is built around, are they of any interest to the next generation? I, I think Will Smith might be, um, maybe because he's Jaden and Willow Smith's dad to a lot of people. I don't know. But I, I have to imagine the TikTok generation last night was discovering who Chris Rock was. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I think forever to an entire generation, Chris Rock will be known as the guy that got hit by Will Smith, and Will Smith will be known as the guy that hit Chris Rock. I think you're right. That, and that's the extent of their careers. That we, you know, myself especially, remember, I remember Will Smith from his, even before the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when he was on MTV with, you know, some of his video work with, I forget what his partner was named. Um, but, you know, they, they were doing these kind of very funky kind of humorous videos back in in the day. And he's had this remarkable uh, trajectory from starting out in those kind of goofy videos but i think last night in some ways this is a couple of 50 i don't know how old the guys are a couple of 55 year olds getting into a fist fight fist fight on the oscar stage and the younger generation generation z that everyone is fixated on getting them through the door to you know care about their properties are looking at like why is this grandpa fighting that grandpa stuff yeah they they needed timothy chamelay and Tom Holland to be going at it on stage. That's that's what that's what this generation needed. So okay, we'll wrap it there. As always, thanks for listening. More content at www.fandomanalytics.com. Talk to you soon.